Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. The last few weeks have been tough. First I got sick, and then my guest got sick. Next thing you know, it's Christmas. Well, I wanted to do one more episode to wrap up the year, so here we are on New Year's Eve. And I hope it's been a good one for you. Last year I did a state of chiropractic episode, so I wanted to do something like that again for you this year. I hope you enjoy. To be perfectly honest with you, I already recorded an episode for this week, but when it was all said and done, I hated it. I couldn't put my finger on it, but it just didn't feel right. The more I thought about it, the more I realized what the problem really was. I was focusing too much effort on trying to predict the next year for you. Unfortunately, the next year is mostly negative, so that meant the whole episode was negative and depressing. By the time I was done recording, it was just a ton of doom and gloom, and I hated it. So I started thinking about how I could approach it differently. Instead of thinking just one year down the road, I started thinking 10 years down the road. What would it take for you to be where you want to be 10 years from now, regardless of what the economy looks like? I recently saw an ad on Facebook offering a free state of chiropractic report. Of course I got it, because I wanted to see if they agreed with my assessment. I have to tell you, I don't think we could have disagreed more. The report says that chiropractors earn a median pay of $75,000 a year, and that that's a great thing. But how is that a good thing? That's not even close to what most doctors get paid and was just as much student debt. The report also talks about chiropractic job openings. When I created my first take on this episode, I spent quite a bit of time looking into the actual numbers and the reasons behind them. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are about 2,100 new chiropractic jobs every year as a result of retirement and other forms of attrition. Plus, the profession sees a growth of roughly 500 per year, for a total of 2,600 new jobs every year. By my calculations, chiropractic schools in the U.S. graduate at least 3,500 new grads every year. Put those two numbers together, and you have 700 graduates per year who can't find a seat, so to speak, and are not working. Those numbers are not nearly as encouraging as what gets sold to prospective chiropractic students. See? I told you. Doom and gloom. The thing that's probably considered the most unfair is that if you have good hands and a good personality, you will do far better in this profession than the person with just good grades. It's kind of sad and probably unfair, but that's really just the way it is. If you want to avoid being one of those 700 that doesn't make it every year, then work to develop your hand skills and your communication ability. If you want to be a good communicator, I highly recommend the book How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie. Even if you don't like reading, it's a very enjoyable read and you're guaranteed to learn something. I want to keep the doom and gloom in check, but this next year may be one of the toughest business environments most of us, if not all of us, have ever seen. The reality is that the economy is going to do what it's going to do, and none of us have any control over that. What we do have control over is how do we do business and the skills we bring to the table to help our patients. I say that simply to say, Skill development is going to be the most important thing during this next year. When the business environment gets rough, it's the least skilled that find themselves unemployed. Take real estate, for example. They're expecting to lose 200,000 real estate agents in the next year. At the same time, it's some of the most skilled who see the greatest growth during that same period of time. As Warren Buffett famously said, 
you can see who is skinny dipping when the tide rolls out. The last few years have been a time when anyone can win, but if you're in a highly leveraged position, you might want to do something about that as this year is likely to see tremendous change in our financial system. The question is, what is it going to take this year for you to be a success? I love Earl Nightingale's definition of success. He said that success is the progressive realization of a worthy goal. Any success that we already enjoy or that we will enjoy in the future is predicated on having a worthy goal. The first question to ask is, do you have a goal that you're trying to achieve? The second question is, is that goal worthy? If the goal is entirely selfish or focused only on money, then I can tell you that it's not worthy. That means that no matter how much you might achieve or how much money you might acquire, you'll never really feel successful due to the fact that your goal is not worthy. Think about this for a moment. The word competition makes most people think of a struggle where there's a winner and a loser. Consequently, their view of life is to position themselves so that they can win, which by its nature means they have to put others in a position to lose. Once you throw ethics out the window, you end up with a culture that will do anything to win, which often means cheating and making losers out of those who play by the rules. What fools they often think to themselves. But the original definition of competition is striving together. In a garden, the plants strive together so they all can grow. If you truly want competition, then you shouldn't seek out environments where you're the best and you can easily win, but you should find people better than you and compete with them for your own personal growth and theirs. This is what is meant by friendly competition, and it's the opposite of the win-at-any-cost mentality that's sort of taken over our society. In fact, the very best place to begin competing is with yourself. Have you ever wondered how someone can practice by themselves and come out better on the other end? It's because they've learned to compete with themselves. Can you even imagine competing with yourself and cheating to win? I remember when my son was very little, probably around three, and I caught him playing tic-tac-toe against himself. I asked him how he was doing. He put on a really sad face and he said, I keep losing. I think he actually kept coming out to a tie, but in his little mind, that was the same thing as losing, only for both sides. I've tried to foster in both my children a spirit of self-competition. First set a benchmark. What can you actually do? Then figure out how you can do just a little bit better. Not way better and certainly not perfection. Just do a little bit better and make that your next benchmark. The next day, you try to do a little bit better. It's also okay to go backwards a bit. I found when I was doing a lot of cycling, if I pushed myself to the limit and I destroyed a previous best, the next day would be terrible. I was okay with that. On those days, I just had to go through the motions and get to the next day. I could go back to doing whatever I was doing before once I had made it past that recovery phase. When I was in school and my early days of practice, I'd sometimes feel like I was in a zone and every adjustment I would make would produce a tremendous result, even when they shouldn't have. Kind of like you can't miss. But there were also days where it didn't matter what I did, I couldn't hit any target and I felt uncoordinated like I was adjusting with my feet. That's all part of the process. But the competition is with yourself, not with anyone else. I'm not one for New Year's resolutions, but for this upcoming year, make an effort to compete with yourself and use that competition to drive yourself forward just a little bit each day. I recently heard the story of Joshua Bell. He decided to do a social experiment and the Washington Post followed him to see what would happen. In 2007, Joshua Bell went to the DC Metro station. He pulled out a violin and he played for 45 minutes. 
In those 45 minutes, 1,097 people passed him while he was playing. 27 of those people gave him money, and only 7 stopped to listen to him for any extended amount of time. For his effort, he collected $32.17, but $20 of that came from just one person who just so happened to recognize him. You see, Joshua Bell is one of the top living violinists today. And the day before this experiment, he played with the Boston Symphony for a concert where seats started at $100 per seat. Before the experiment, the Washington Post asked a famous conductor, Leonard Slatkin, what he thought the results would be. He thought that out of 1,000 people, maybe 35 or 40 would recognize him, maybe 75 to 100 would stop to listen to him, and he'd collect maybe $150. As you can see, the actual results were much worse. Not only did the passengers fail to recognize one of the greatest living violinists in the world today, but they also failed to recognize the $3.2 million Stradivarius he was playing, the same one he played for the concert the night before. This got me thinking, because I know enough about music to know that if your competency is above a certain level, you can recognize when someone has abilities that are beyond the ordinary. However, if you don't possess that level of competency, and I've come to understand that the average person generally does not, then you really can't tell high-quality talent or even the high-quality sound of a Stradivarius. Sometimes, I think we struggle with this in our profession. If a doctor has a high level of talent and ability, will their patients really appreciate it? Do they even have the capacity to appreciate it? If they don't have that ability, might they wrongly praise those with mediocre or average ability simply because they don't know the difference? I had this thought, and it made me sad because true chiropractic talent might be ignored simply because so few have the capacity to truly appreciate it. Just think of Dr. Gonstead. I think he was praised in his time by a profession that had the talent and ability to fully appreciate what he was doing. But in our time, do most students have any appreciation for his talents? Or do they have appreciation for any real talent? For the most part, it would be really difficult to identify any real talent among the biggest names in chiropractic. And I'd be shocked if you could get any two chiropractors to even agree on what real chiropractic talent looks like. The fact that people didn't recognize a famous Grammy-winning violinist or his famous violin tells you that most people are not qualified to recognize talent if it isn't the industry that they work in. The saying goes, talent recognizes talent, or the more colloquial, game recognizes game. I think this is important because we certainly can't expect the public to know the difference between a good chiropractor and a great chiropractor, or even a terrible chiropractor for that matter. There's no use in getting frustrated about that because it's not malintent or not even them not paying attention. But it's simply outside of their ability because chiropractic is not where their talent lies. I'd like to share with you the story of how this podcast was started, in case you've never heard it. I was at a GCSS board meeting, and I looked across the table, and I saw Danny O'Hara, Dave Geary, Sam Gunlogson, and Dan Lyons. That was the beginning of a thought. I looked around the rest of the room, and that thought kind of completed itself. The thought was that I'm surrounded by the best chiropractors in the world, and nobody even knows their names. As I do, on occasion... I then opened my mouth and began speaking without thinking it through fully. I said out loud, I think we should start a podcast. Dan Lyons said, I agree, and I think you should do it. That was the part I hadn't fully considered, if at all. This would have been at a board meeting probably in October. So I said, okay, I'll put it together, and I'll be ready to roll at the beginning of the new year. 
That was now three years ago, and I've had the privilege of introducing you to all the people I just mentioned, and many more besides them. Now it's time to begin work on year four, and hopefully I can introduce you to even more of these wonderful doctors that we have yet to speak with. I'm intentionally releasing this episode on New Year's Eve. I'm doing that to encourage you to take some time to consider how you're going to grow yourself and your abilities during this upcoming year. I'm currently working with my family to make some decisions about what this next year is going to look like. That has led me to make some very bold decisions about what we need to do. For my part, that means that in the first few months of the new year, I'm going to be making some changes that will make my life look a lot different than it does right now. A big part of that is the result of deciding what my priorities are and what they should be. When you decide what the most important thing is, decisions are a lot easier to make, especially the hard ones. I hope you found this helpful. I want to thank you for joining me all this year, and I look forward to what we're going to learn together in the upcoming year. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next year.